starting a new series. You remember we finished off um, last week the second part of First Fruits, giving our first and best to God this year. And so I hope that sort of sticks with us. Um, but we're starting a new series now on First Peter, and then we're going to go into Second Peter, and then Jude. And, uh, well, we'll just see how far we get anyway. Um, and uh, so if you're in a small group or you're looking for a small group, there is a book that goes with it. There's a couple of ways you can get involved in this. There is a book, and it's got 15 or 20 minutes of homework every day, so I know I've immediately scared most of you right there. Um, but if you want to go together in your group, you can do the homework together, or you can just talk at the end of the week about the homework or about the, about the different devotionals that were each day. So 15, 20 minutes a day if you want to go that route. If you're used to doing a devotion and you want to do that, your group might want to do that. Or, as Graham mentioned in the bulletin, uh, your small group uh, might want to just follow along and sort of talk about different aspects of the sermon or different aspects of First Peter as we talk about it. And so there's a handout there to help group leaders just be able to remember what we talked about and, and take the discussion a little bit farther in your group. Um, let me just open up in a word of prayer before we begin this introduction. Father God, we come today to begin a new study in um, your word and to look at... Uh, what your apostle has written, Peter. And uh, so, Father, I just pray that as we open up this book and as I've studied it, it's become more and more amazing even to me. And, and I don't know how long we're going to go in it just with the depth of stuff that's there. But, Lord, I pray that as we, we look at each part of what Peter has written and what you have given to us, uh, that it would settle firmly in our hearts and that it would be an encouragement to us. Um, your word is written uh, for all time. And for all people. And we know that it lands on us uh, in this time, in this place, in each of our lives uh, with a purpose. Uh, not by mistake, but absolutely because you want us to hear what you would, what you would say to us. And, uh, and we would understand you, your purpose in our life better. So we pray that that would be true in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, um, as the, sort of an introduction to the series... Um, we look at uh, the first verse there, First uh, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. There's a Bible somewhere in the row in front of you if you didn't bring one. And uh, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappado- Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And uh, just as I started our series on 1 Corinthians, you remember way back last January, started on 1 Corinthians, I started out with an outline of Paul and the church at Corinth who he was writing to. And so when we start 1 Peter here, we want to take a look at Peter. I thought I'd start the same way. And so today is going to be an overview of Peter, who is Peter and the people that he's writing to. And so it's a little more teaching today than preaching, and I love to preach, and the preaching is coming, uh, but you might sort of feel like today is a little more teaching. Um, Peter, First Peter, and the letters that he writes is dense with doctrine, as we're soon going to see. Uh, there's one pastor, John Brown, he's a pastor and a writer, and he spent 16 years on First and Second Peter, just on First and Second Peter, 16 years, I kid you not. And another pastor spent uh, two years on just First Peter, 101 messages on First Peter, okay? So we're not going to do 100 messages, we're not going to do 16 years, we might do 16 weeks, um, but there is a lot going on in First Peter, okay? And there's a lot going on with the Apostle Peter and who he is, 
and the people that he's writing to. And so as we look into Peter, we're going to look into who he is and to the circumstances of him writing these letters. They're not long, but there is a lot going on in them. And uh, so who is Peter? It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, we call him Peter. He was born Simon. This will be a refresher for a lot of you, but others, maybe this will just sort of catch you up on Peter as a disciple and who Peter was. He was born in Bethsaida, which is in Galilee, and he was a fisherman, right? Peter was a fisherman, and his, his father was also a fisherman. His father was named John or Jonah, sort of variation on that word. And his, his brother was also the apostle Andrew. And it was his brother, Andrew, uh, along with their partners, the apostles James and John, who were also fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and also Zebedee, the father of James and John. So there was this little, uh, these partnership, these, these fishermen guys, and, and Peter was one of this, this, sort of, this sort of partnership of fishermen, and uh, along with his brother and these other guys who ended up following Jesus. And, that, and that's sort of where Peter, well, Simon, he was Simon at the time, born Simon. And that's where he started out as just an everyday sort of common fisherman. And Andrew, his brother, was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was following John the Baptist before Jesus came along. And then when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, it was Andrew that introduced Peter. I'm just going to keep calling him Peter, even though at this time he's Simon. But it was Andrew that introduced Peter to Jesus. Now, Peter was married, and uh, we understand that he had a mother-in-law who was sick, right? So he must have had a wife to have a mother-in-law. And so he's this married guy. And uh, and Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 9 as well. He says, aren't we, uh, don't we have the right to take a wife like, like, like Peter? calls him Cephas at that time, his Aramaic name. You know, so he's married, and we don't hear about Peter's wife, um, but you know, probably traveled with him and uh, was part of the group of people that traveled Jesus that was larger than just the 12 disciples. There was always a large group of people following Jesus, and so his wife uh, was, was part of that. And, uh, but there's no record of children, and uh, so that's, that's just a little picture of Peter. Now, the interesting thing about Peter is once he became a disciple, he sort of became the de facto leader of the disciples, okay? You remember Peter's sort of personality, um, that he was very headstrong, that he was very outspoken, that he asked a lot of questions, right? And that as the disciples sort of worked with Jesus and, and were, uh, went along with Jesus, it was always Peter who was jumping into action first, Right, he was—he's always listed as the first in the list of the apostles that you find um, in uh, Matthew 10 or Mark 3 or Luke 6 or Acts 1. You go in any of those areas in the list of the disciples that are given. Peter's always the first one. The other orders all change around, but Peter is always the first one. And so he was—he's sort of the head or the leader of the disciples, or later called apostles. And the apostles were unique in their authority of Scripture. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone. In Ephesians 3.5, it says that the apostles received revelation, and Peter is one of these, you know, perhaps the foremost of these apostles or disciples. And so Peter speaks and Peter writes with complete and absolute authority. Okay, so as we look at these letters of First and Second Peter, you have to realize who's writing them. This is Peter who walked with Jesus, who was the counted sort of the first among the disciples, who was a cornerstone of the church. And so he's writing with complete authority as he writes these letters. Paul calls Peter a pillar of the church. And so he was recognized by the apostle Paul and by the other apostles as a pillar in the church. 
And in the Gospels, Peter is mentioned second only to Jesus himself. Okay, so through the, through the Gospels, as it's telling the story of Jesus, the best supporting actor award sort of goes to Peter. Because he is the next most mentioned person in the Gospels, and he speaks the most next to Jesus, or his, his words are recorded the most. Because just as often, and, and, and Jesus speaks to him the most, and that may or may not be an honor, because just as often as Jesus is praising Peter, we know that Jesus is also rebuking Peter. Right? Jesus more pointedly rebuked Peter above all the other disciples. Remember he said, after Peter had, uh, Jesus was explaining that he had to go to the cross, and Peter says, no, it'll never be that you would, you know, that you would suffer that way. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, can you imagine that rebuke? Be called Satan by Jesus because he was tempting Jesus to forsake the cross. And so Peter got some of the harshest words other than Judas from the Lord. And so at the same time, no other disciple dared to rebuke Jesus as much as Peter did. Right? Peter rebukes him saying, God forbid this, that this would ever happen to you. Peter starts speaking to Jesus saying, you, you can't talk that way. Jesus can't talk as if you're going to die. You know, God forbid that that would happen. And then Jesus has to correct them. Or even when he goes to wash the disciples' feet, right? Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. You know, stop doing what you're doing. You know, Peter was very outspoken, even to Jesus, in a way that no other disciple spoke. And so no other disciple dared to, to speak to Jesus the way Peter did. And so he got the name Peter. He was renamed Peter. He was renamed Petros by Jesus. When he declared Jesus to be the Messiah in Matthew 16, 8, Jesus came to the disciples and he said, you know, who do people say that I am? And they said, oh, you know, some people think that you're um, John the Baptist. John was still alive at the time. but um, And some think that you are... Um, Mental block. Elijah, that's it. Ezekiel stuck in my head, and I knew it wasn't Ezekiel. Elijah. <laughs> Some think that you're Elijah. And, uh, and uh, he said, but who do you think that I am? And it was Peter that answered and said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? And Jesus says, it's God that revealed that to you, Peter. And I, and I name you Peter because on that rock I'm going to build my church. This rock of the recognition that I am the Messiah. God's going to build his church on. And there's not very many people that God has renamed. And Peter's one of them, right? There was Abram who became Abraham, and there was Jacob who God named Israel. Peter's one of these guys that he was called Simon, but God renamed him Peter. So it's a pretty elect group of people to be renamed by God. And Peter's one of those few. And Jesus praised and blessed Peter. He says, God's revealed this to you, and I name you Petros, and on this rock I'll build my church. And so there's this... Just, I'm just getting across to you this idea of Peter and his personality as well, that he's such a big character in the life of Jesus and such a big person in the life of the apostles. He was impetuous. He was always pushing. He was always acting. It was Peter who asked the meaning of difficult teaching in Matthew 15. It was Peter who, who went to Jesus and said, how often am I supposed to forgive? Is it just seven times? And, and Jesus says, 70 times seven. And it's, it's Peter who asked 
Jesus, what is the reward of those who follow you? What about us, Jesus? What about us who have given up all to follow you? It was Peter who's asking Jesus, what about that reward for those that follow? It was Peter in Mark 11 that asked Jesus about the fig tree. It was Peter that was asking in Mark 13 about the end times that were coming. It was Peter who questioned the risen risen Christ in John 21. It's Peter who is always impetuous, always asking, always questioning. It was Peter that pulled out a sword and attacked the guards when they came for Jesus. It says he cut off his ear. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he wasn't aiming to cut off the guy's ear, right? I mean, you don't set out with a sword to cut off a guy's ear. Either that or he's got really good aim. He's trying to cut off his head, right? And I mean, he managed to get his ear. Peter was ready to take on the whole Roman cohort in order to protect his savior. And so Peter's always, he jumped out of the boat to meet Jesus on the water and then almost immediately started to sink. But Peter's just, he's a leader. He's a questioner. He took action. And as a result, Peter maybe took on or made himself a bit of a target for suffering in his life. And I want to talk about that, just some of Peter's sufferings. And this is going to be important as we come to keep in mind as we come later on. Because Peter, as an author, not only is he this disciple, not only is he an apostle, not only does he have speak with this authority to be able to write uh, these letters in the New Testament uh, led by the Holy Spirit, but even in his own personal experience, Peter suffered. Peter took on some suffering just to follow Jesus. Right? He left his business. I talked at the beginning. He was a successful business person. He had partners. They were making money fishing. And Peter dropped it all, left his business, and followed Jesus. And probably took his wife out of their home and with him. And so there might have been some suffering there too, as he's trying to explain to his wife while they're following this itinerant rabbi as he wanders around for three years. And they're leaving this business behind and their house behind. And he left his home and he left his money and he followed Jesus with long, hard days and no place to live and no place to lay his head and not much food or money. So Peter suffered even in that beginning way. But then Peter suffered those rebukes of Jesus, of get behind me, Satan. And, and uh, just the way P- Jesus had to correct him and uh, the, the things that, that Peter learned at the feet of Jesus was a type of suffering uh, in the sense of his correction by the rabbi. And then Peter suffered a crisis of faith, denying Jesus three times. Think about this. After he had just said that he would never deny Jesus, that everybody else might forsake Jesus, but he would never leave him. And Jesus said, you will deny me three times. And then he does deny Jesus three times. Can you imagine the crisis of faith at that point in Peter's life? Can you imagine the suffering after spending his time devoted to this Jesus and then realizing his own cowardice to deny him within the hearing of that very Jesus. And then Peter is burdened with this great responsibility. After Jesus returns, he gives Peter this burden of feeding my sheep. And he restores Jesus. He asks him, do you love me three times in order to restore him for the three denials? But then he gives him this burden of restoring his sheep. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he's going to die. He says, people are going to lead you where you don't want to go and your arms will be outstretched. And it says in John that Jesus told him this to tell him of the, of the death that he should expect in following him. And so Peter was living his life with this burden of his responsibility to Jesus, but also knowing how his life was en- would end. And he wasn't happy about it, you know, because at that time, you'll remember in John 21, when, 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 when Jesus says this to Peter, P- Peter turns around and looks at John and says, yeah, but what about him, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, don't worry about him. I'm telling you what's going to happen to you. You know, whatever I please for him is for him, and whatever is for you is for you. And so Peter's not happy about this. 
And then after this, after Jesus comes back and after he's ascended and Peter now is fulfilling his duty as an apostle to feed the sheep that Jesus gave him. And so he gets up there in Acts and he gives that, that sermon and then he's immediately flogged and jailed for his preaching of the sermon in Acts. And he stands before the Sanhedrin and he stands before the council and he gives testimony and they beat him and send him on his way. And then later on, even as he's going through his life as an apostle with the other apostles and with the disciples and in the founding of the early church, you know, I was just sort of going through all of Peter's areas where he might have sort of undergone suffering that we might be able to relate to. Peter knew even the rebuke of the church. You remember after everything Jesus had taught him and he had the vision of, he had the vision of the, he went to Cornelius' house and the Gentiles were welcomed in and then he, he's in Galatia with Paul and he, Peter's old sort of cowardice kind of came up and he wasn't sure because those, Jew, those Jews, Jew, Judaizers were there, the Jewish people were there and they didn't want to eat with the Gentiles and Peter kind of separated himself and he ate with the Jews but he didn't eat with the Gentiles. You remember that in Galatians and Paul rebukes him. The Apostle Paul says, you know, Peter, what are you doing, you know, separating yourself from the Gentiles and acting like these Judaizers? And so even there, Peter knows the rebuke, even within the church, sometimes we have that suffering where we feel rebuked in the church by fellow believers. Well, Peter's there too. He suffered in that way as well. Peter couldn't have been happy about that. He couldn't have been happy about himself. Wasn't necessarily happy that Paul called him out on it either. So all these things about Peter, as we sort of look at Peter's life, and then in the final days, finally, Peter is imprisoned. In the final days of his life, he's imprisoned in Rome. And Peter is cast into this horrible prison. It's called the Mamertine prison. It's the same prison that Paul was in. In fact, it's quite likely that Paul and Peter were in that prison together near the end of their life. And so for nine months, he endured torture. He was chained up in the Mamertine prison for nine months. And in spite of all of that suffering, Peter was subject to, tradition has it that he actually converted his jailers. And there's testimony in two or three different histories of Proceus and Martinez who are his jailers, who he converted uh, in that jail. And, and at the end of that time, Peter and his wife are killed, probably at the hand of the Romans during Nero's circus in roughly 66 AD. And he was killed in the way that was told to him by Jesus, by crucifixion. And so this is Peter, Peter who knew Jesus, who was trained by Jesus, who knows personally all kinds of suffering, who has had crises of faith, who's had denials, who's had restorations, who's been rebuked by Jesus, who's been rebuked by Paul, um, who's been in jail, he's been flogged, he ends up in prison at the end of his life under Nero, Nero ends up killing him and his wife together. This is Peter who knows suffering. Peter can talk about these things. And he has a message on suffering for the Christians, his fellow Christians that are scattered abroad. And so when we look into this letter of 1 Peter that was probably written during the time that he was in prison, here's the situation, okay? So it's 64 to 65 AD. You've got to figure this out. It's near the end of his life, even though he may not have realized exactly when his life was ending. It was near the end of his life. And we have to date the letter right. But Peter would die, if we have it dated right, Peter would probably die by order of Nero within about a year of the writing of this letter. And so... Just to get the context here of the situation that the church is in, as Peter writes this letter, you have to understand that Nero is now emperor. Okay, So it was Augustus Caesar when Jesus was born, and then it was Tiberius, and then it was Caligula, and then it was Claudius, and now it's Nero. 
Okay, so Nero is now the emperor. And it's about 64 AD, it's the summer of 64 AD, and the city of Rome is burning. Okay, this is a history lesson for some of you. You remember this? Rome burns. Nero fiddled while Rome burned, right? You remember that? Okay, so this is the time that we're talking about here with Peter. Okay, so Rome is on fire, and Nero is watching the fire, and many of the Romans believe that Nero caused the fire, right? You remember that? How people think that Nero set the fire and burned Rome on purpose because he was crazy and he wanted to build a new palace and so he burnt part of Rome down and that he was actually setting the fire to keep it burning while he watched it burn to get it burned down so he could build his palace. And actually within a few years, Nero himself would actually be denounced as a public enemy and be uh, set up for execution. But in the meantime, before we get there, Nero needs to shift the blame from himself and being very politically brilliant enough to achieve something like being emperor of Rome, he brilliantly shifts the blame to the Christians. And so the secondary story here is that the Christians set the fire. Okay, that's the sort of the secondary history, is that it was these Christians who set fire to Rome in the summer of 64 AD. And it was all those Christians. Nero had homeless people in Rome. They were economically ruined. They were angry. And so Nero starts spreading around that the Christians started the fire. And the Christians were already hated by many of the Romans. They were associated with the Jews. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Rome. And there was no love between the Jews and the Romans. And not only that, but the Christians would have nothing to do with emperor worship, right? Everybody was supposed to worship the emperor of Rome as a god. And the Christians would have no part of worshiping the emperor as a god. So he didn't like them for that reason. And they were also making the government look bad because they were caring for the poor and the needy better than the Roman social systems could. You remember I touched on that a few months ago. There's an emperor that actually wrote and talked about how disgusted he was with the Christians who were looking after the Roman people better than Rome could look after their own people. And so they didn't like the Christians for that. And the Christians talked all the time. This was the clincher. The Christians kept talking all the time about how the world would end in fire. And then Rome catches on fire. So this is perfect. Nero has got him nailed dead to rights, right? He can blame the Christians for this fire. And so the secondary history behind this history of Nero causing the fire and the building of his palace and all of that, if you look into um, Tacitus and some of the other Roman historians, it's, oh, oh, the, the Christians set the fire. And so Nero pointed at the Christians. And so then there became this persecution, you have to understand this is what's happening in the summer of 64 and, and then later on into AD 65 is that there's this persecution on Christians because of this fire in Rome. And Christians began to be tortured in ways that they had not ever seen before. It's reported that Nero rolled Christians in oil and lit them on fire to light his gardens. He set his hunting dogs on them and they were nailed to crosses, which is ultimately what happened to Peter as a form of torture and to be killed. And so they were burned and they were lacerated and they were broken and they were tortured and they were imprisoned. And so this persecution spread from Rome into all other areas, areas like Asia Minor, or as Peter writes in that first verse, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So Peter is writing to Christians where this persecution has spread from Rome out into the outlying areas. And the church is suffering under this very specific persecution under Nero, that they are being attacked because of the blame that has been shifted to them. 
And so this church that he's writing to, these areas that he's writing to, is sort of the present day of Turkey. And the condition that they're in is this persecution that has spread out to them. And so this, as we look at 1 Peter, it's a letter that is written to believers who are aliens, who are strangers in a hostile culture. 1 Peter says, in each chapter of 1 Peter, you'll see that he is writing to people who are under stress. He says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Or he says in chapter 2, and I don't have them all up there, but he says in chapter 2, For this too you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Or then in chapter 3, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, meaning those who persecute you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord as always, being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that's in you. Or in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Or then in chapter 5, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called to you has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So all through this letter, Peter is referring to the reality of the suffering of this Christian people. That's who he's writing this letter to. These are people in a time of suffering. They're suffering specifically under the persecution of Rome, and that would erupt shortly into a war that would ultimately destroy the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. So there's a lot of political, historical stuff going on here that the context of this letter is written in. But they're also suffering the day-to-day trials of a cursed and fallen world. These are the, Not only are they suffering the persecution of the church, but they also are just suffering with the day-to-day reality of, of, of the child mortality of the time, of illness, of disease, of aging. They suffered and we suffer all the normal day-to-day indignities and the day-to-day pains of life, some of us more and some of us less, but in our own time and our own season, we will all face suffering more than once. Now, in the bigger sort of political issue, we suffer very little in Canada sort of politically or legally. You can sort of look at this and say, okay, Paul, I get it, but, you know, there's, you know, there is no Nero circus, there is no lions, and we're not being fed to tigers or crucified you know this sort of this thing that you're describing here that peter's writing to this doesn't apply to us you know we don't suffer politically or legally or in that way collectively as a church but individually and peter writes about this too individually distress and suffering comes into our lives in no less disastrous ways right sickness is suffering poverty is suffering domestic abuse is suffering mental illness is suffering suicide causes suffering cancer is suffering and the treatment for cancer is suffering and divorce is suffering and 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 demeaning employment or or bosses uh cause suffering and and it's interesting because peter speaks to all of these things as well it's not just peter talking about the persecution of nero and you know the roman soldiers and the tortures that are going on peter talks about family life peter talks about marriage peter talks about husbands and wives and peter talks about bosses and employees in this little letter peter is talking about all the ways in which we are to live so this letter speaks to us too The bottom line of this letter is Peter is writing a letter out of his own experience and out of his authority as an apostle 
about how to live life victoriously in the midst of suffering in any form that it takes, without losing faith, without becoming bitter or hostile, but living rightly in the present day. Now, where do I get that from? This is the content of what is written. In the New Testament, the word suffering, pashko, it's used 24 times in all of the New Testament. Half of those uses are found in these five chapters. So of all the things that the New Testament says about, New Testament letters say about suffering, out of the 24 times that word is used, 12 of them are in these five chapters. And then the other interesting thing is that the word conduct or manner of living, which is anastrophe, what we would call lifestyle, is used 13 times in the New Testament letters and the instructions to the church. And of those 13 times that it's used, six of them are used here by Peter. There's a very simple theme that Peter is trying to get across in this short letter. What lifestyle, what manner of living are Christians going to have in the face of suffering? That's it. How are we to conduct ourselves in the midst of suffering without losing faith, without becoming bitter, without having a bad testimony to those around us, but to live our lives in the midst of our suffering in such a way that we would not be reviled, but that we would be able to give an account for the hope that we have within us. And so Peter is concerned in this letter of the lifestyle at work, our lifestyle at home, our lifestyle among the unbelievers and amongst hostility, that their conduct is lived out in this crucible of suffering, but that their conduct reflects the glory of God. And that's what we're going to look at in the weeks to come. Peter writes this letter deliberately as a letter to all Christians. One of the things you'll notice is right from the introduction, he says it's to the exiles who are in all these different areas. Right? He's expecting this letter to be copied and passed around from church to church and to read it. And then as you're reading it, you'll notice he doesn't address anybody specifically and he doesn't address any type of suffering specifically. He doesn't say to you who are imprisoned by the Romans. He doesn't say you know, to you who have this particular suffering or you who have suffered this torture. Or he doesn't mention anybody by name. He just talks in general because Peter is writing this as a general letter for all Christians to understand how they are to live out their life in the face of suffering. And he does this. And how he does it, basically, the amazing thing about how he does this teaching and the amazing thing about 1 Peter and why it can be preached on for two years or for 16 years is because 1 Peter is just chock full of core Christian doctrine. And I'll just go through a few of the things here. I don't have them listed up there, but some of the things that that Peter writes about immediately in these first five chapters, just in these short five chapters, he writes on election. He writes on the blood of Christ. He writes on on eternal inheritance. He talks about the proof of true faith. He encourages us on our salvation. He talks about what holiness is. He talks about our new birth in Christ. He talks about the word and spiritual growth. He talks about our identity as a royal priesthood. He talks about marriage. He talks about suffering. He talks about the defense of our faith. He talks about baptism. He talks talks about humility he talks about anxiety all of this just in these five chapters this is why you can do a hundred messages just on first peter but peter has learned these lessons himself he's learned the lessons of submission he's learned the lessons of restraint he's learned the lesson of humility he's learned the lesson of grace he's learned the lessons of sacrifice he's been taught love by jesus he's been taught courage he stood before the sanhedrin Jesus has, or Peter has learned all of these lessons himself. He's an apostle. 
He's in this crucible of suffering, which is the re- political and social reality of living under the emperor Nero. And he's writing to Christians who are, who are living in that reality. And so as we look into 1 Peter, we're going to look at all these different lessons that we can learn as Christians. And as we go through this, we can all look at our own lives and we can all say, what is our suffering? What is our torture that we're in? What are the things that, what is the rebuke? What is the um, recrimination? What is the hostility? What is the suffering that's going on in our life? And then we will look at First Peter and First Peter, through this letter, will teach us as Christians how to live a life worthy of giving glory to God without having a crisis of faith, without becoming bitter, without um, um, reflecting poorly on Christ, but to be able to give an account for the hope that's in us. That's what First Peter, that's, that's what I hope is in store for us in First Peter. And I hope that your understanding of who Peter is and your understanding of these conditions of the time that he's writing and the Christians that he's writing to and his encouragement for them right near the end of his life that they would persevere, that will be an encouragement to you. That's what we're looking forward to in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father God, there's going to be a lot to digest in First Peter. And uh, I thank you for the example of his life. I thank you that just even in this brief time, we can reflect on and remember who the Apostle Peter is and the things of his life and the things that he experienced and went through. And Father, as we, as we hear these things and read these things, they seem so far away from us that we're not in jail, we're not tortured, uh, we're not crucified for our faith. But Lord, you intended these things for us to remember and to uh, give us courage and give us hope in our own suffering and in our own lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we go forward, we will be able to apply these things, that we will be able to take the, the realities that Peter is writing about in the context that he's writing about and bring them forward into our own time. And we'll look at the suffering in our own lives. Father, it's hard to be sick. It's hard to work at a job that seems pointless. It's hard to suffer under bad bosses. It's hard to suffer within families that hate us for our faith. It's hard to grow old and just the torture of arthritis and illness and pneumonia and just the wearing down of our bodies in this fallen world. Father, there is suffering aplenty in our own little fellowship here. There's suffering aplenty in this world. And so I pray that as we look at First Peter, that this is exactly the antidote that we need. This is exactly the medicine that we need for our suffering the truth of these doctrines that Peter's going to outline, the hope in our salvation, your sovereignty, our identity as a royal priesthood, and everything else that you're going to unpack for us. Father, help us to look to your word for our strength and look to you for our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.